Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. On this episode, we're joined by Sarah Frazier and Brian Burton, co-founder and co-CEOs of Instinct Dog Behavior and Training. Nationally recognized as experts in their field, we're learning all about the interaction of breed and behavior. Does your dog breeds matter? Find out more in this episode. Sarah, Brian, I am so excited to have you here with me today. I have become a big fan of yours as of late, listening to some of your webinars that you have like each month that are free for people to join in on, and they've been excellent. I know that I've taken a lot of great takeaways that I can share with my clients from them. And I love that you both have graduate degrees in animal behavior. So that is, I know that 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 is like above and beyond, definitely something that a lot of people don't have. Can you explain what that was like to get and how that's a little bit different than perhaps someone who has just, you know, goes through training or gets their certification, what that difference might be? Yeah. I mean, I think we both really loved and enjoyed the process of going through and obtaining that degree and felt like it uh, it's difficult to even sort of state, I think, the impact it has on how we view dogs and animals and what we do every day. I think it it was hugely helpful in really solidifying a, a better understanding of like the differences in perception between us and dogs. It's so easy to leave, lose sight of that because they're so good at living in our human world, but really appreciating them as a different species and that how they move through the world and how they perceive the world is so, so different at every level. Um, that's just, I know one example, but I think I, for me, that was a huge takeaway in earning that degree. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that, like perception. Um, and also I think it really challenges you to really think about why interventions are working or why, or why something maybe isn't working. Um, I felt like it gave that framework to be a little bit more analytical. Um, and I will also say too, I think learning, to think about behavior uh, for multiple species also I, was was really helpful because honestly it was very humbling, <laughs> you know, like how little we actually know. Um, but at the same time, we learned a lot, and yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade that for anything for sure. No, I I love those answers. Those are are just it's it is very true. Like just in terms of something that, you know, dog training in and of itself has in some ways been passed down as like a generational type of work where y- it's like this master thing that you learn from somebody else. It's like this trade work versus it's becoming more and more of a science. Can you explain how that is? Yeah. Well, I think it's it's a really good point because I feel like one without the other, it leaves a gap in your effectiveness. Uh, and that doesn't mean that everyone has to do, I think, a master's degree in animal behavior or anything like that. Um, it did help us, but there's other ways to get that information. I have a ton of respect for so many people in the dog training community who also, you know, don't have, you know, advanced degrees or anything. Um, so I want to make sure that that's clear. But I, but I would say, like, yeah, like really respecting because, like, the hands-on component is something you're not really going to learn in school. Like you're not going to learn how to break up a dog fight or, you know, uh, how to go in and out of elevators in a high rise building in New York city with your leash reactive dog. So like all that hands-on portion is really, really important. 
Um, but then also like sort of challenging, and this is with our team as well, to make sure to continue learning and, and, and continue to understand like the why behind things um, is really is super important because I think it's easy to get stuck in, well, this is the way I've always done things, um, or this is the way things have always been done. And I, uh, I, th I think when you learn to think about this more broadly, I feel like it brings an opportunity to sort of challenge yourself a little bit more. And I think we've had a lot of growth there. I think it also makes it easier to keep the accountability on the us as teachers to help our learners succeed versus saying, oh, that's a bad dog or this dog is, you know, not smart or can't learn or, you know, it really challenges us to say like, well, what else might be happening here? Is this really a personal flaw of the dog in front of us when it comes to their ability to learn and make progress or is there something else going on here? Um, so I feel like in that way, it's really important and helpful as well. Yeah, those are some really, really great points. I, I know that as a trainer myself, I am so just inspired by the way that this community has really come together to be more rooted in science rather than just some of these myths and mis misconceptions about what dogs are and why they behave the way that they behave. And I know we're going to jump into dog breeds and how that impacts behavior. But before we do, I think that you know, even talking about the science of dogs and some of that that really gives more kind of root to, to the type of messaging that we are using with our clients and, and the type of methods that we use, I think one important myth... It, not not necessarily important, but I think one myth that really influences dog behavior or the way that it's perceived and the way that dog training is done is that idea of sort of that pack mentality that dogs have evolved from wolves, which we know that part is true, but I think that that part has definitely been taken in a different direction to sort of have these, these mis misconceptions about like being the alpha dog and the submissive roles and like how they... You, there's like this mentality of that, that has been taken kind of in the wrong direction. And I know that you can expand more on that, but if you could like expand more on how that has been misperceived and even like how that's been taken back by different people like Merck, which if you, if you wouldn't mind going into that, I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to take that one first, Brian? Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a big one. Um, yeah, because I think that there's, as humans, there are things that we sort of feel like are uh, inherently true about dogs, I think, as humans, because I think we we do view our social relationships in, in a different way as, you know, human primates, essentially. Um, and I think it's easy to sort of get stuck thinking that, you know, dogs perceive relationships the same way. Um, so we have to be really careful there. I, I would also add to that because a lot of times this gets in the talk of like dominance and all of those uh, kind of, you know, scary terms, especially when you're on a podcast and everything. <laughs> but, um, but, but I think what's important is like there, we have to be really careful to also not strip away sort of the st strip away, like how the dog is actually perceiving stuff. So when we talk about like, you know, alpha stuff or dominance and anything, like I do feel very strongly that within dog dog relationships a lot of that is can be you know very true and and can be important in terms of how you set up the environment and everything in terms of how we interact with our dogs we have this social group we are two different species they know we're not dogs and i think for us you know to try to get to try to be a dog and be alpha or be dominant i think is a you know it's a it's a really 
slippery slope there. So really what we're talking about, I think, with our relationships with our dogs is, you know, to be safe, helpful, and predictable. Like that's really what we want, like our clients when they're working with their dogs is how can I be safe, helpful, and predictable? Because that still allows you to have some form of leadership because our dogs do need guidance, but at the same time, not trying to, I guess, you know, control all the behavior through like our relationship status or how we're, um, being authoritative, right? So, um, or or, sorry, authoritarian. So like, I don't know, Sarah, if you want to add anything to that, but that, that's sort of what I feel like I'm I'm always a little bit hesitant because I I think where I get a little scared sometimes is like when I, when I hear people say like dominance doesn't exist or those, like that's not true, but also it doesn't really have, uh, you know, how we tackle training with our dogs from the human dog relationship. Um, that's really not something we have to really focus on to move forward. Yeah, I think it's on, I think it's, we seem to have just like, I guess people like to live on the edges, like the, the either side of the extremes sort of. And so there's that, you know, trying to be alpha and like all that that entails in terms of how people might think they need to treat their, their dogs. And then there's the total flip side of almost like, almost not wanting to say that relationship matters at all when we know that relationship is it with dogs. Like that's why we have dogs. That's what there's, that's where it's all the magic lives. And so I think it's, it's important to just note that relationship and relationship dynamics are really important, but what, what matters with our dogs because they are dependent family members, because they're 100% dependent on us to meet their needs is that, as Brian said, we do take on a leadership role, but oftentimes it's more a little bit more like parent-child or maybe manager or caretaker and showing up for them as safe, predictable, and helpful and honoring who they are as a species and as an individual. Like that to us is leadership and that that's how you're going to be a guide and a leader to your dog versus trying to control their behavior through maybe like aversive means that are really unpleasant for everyone. No, those, those are some really interesting points. So a couple of thoughts that I had. So first off, so thinking of Mark, who, who wrote this literature that then was taken by the dog training world on wolves. And so looking at like the alpha wolf and what he has stated since was kind of re, like going back on some of the stuff that he said, because it has been mistaken and taken in it, like kind of out of context, I think. So as you mentioned, like there definitely, there is definitely validity to a lot of, of what has been done there. And there definitely is truth to, to some of that, but I think it's just definitely misapplied. And uh, one thing that I, I know that I've learned since is that like even for wolves themselves, like dogs are very different in, in some ways from wolves. Like they definitely have certain characteristics that they've taken. And, you know, in a lot of ways they, that really plays out in the way that they play, the way that they interact. And so we do see these aspects of, of a wolf, although it's more like kind of that like juvenile type of wolf. So that younger wolf, but one thing that has been found since is that rather than thinking of it as like this, almost like military kind of militaristic kind of hierarchy where someone is like the, the top leader and then this one and this one, it's, you can think of it more like a family system. So like you have the parents, you have like older brothers and sisters, you have younger siblings. And so there's sort of that type of relationship, like you might more naturally have in a family. Am I right there? I think for the most part, that's a closer way for us to think about it, you know, I would say. And I, I, I know then we can get into things like, well, were they in a 
how big was the group of wolves and were they in a confined space versus free roaming and all that kind of stuff. And that's a little bit above my yeah. knowledge base, truthfully. <laughs> but I would agree with you that I think thinking of it more as a family system, because often that's what it is. And that's more what we have with dogs too, even though we're different species, is that like there's 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 dynamics within a family. Um, I think that's a great way to think about it. And that whole idea of like the linear, you know, line of different statuses in a group is seems to not be relevant or accurate in the vast majority of situations that people are encountering. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. And I, 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 and it always comes down to two, like it's, uh, and I, and I, you know, every once in a while I, I talk to an owner about this and it's like, we're not a pack of wolves and we're not a, you know, group of dogs. Like we are, we're two different species. And, um, and so we have to be really thoughtful there about, about our relationships and really being careful about not trying to be a wolf or not trying to be a dog. Like I really like, that's, that's not what, what we're doing here. And we have a responsibility as well. Like, I think sometimes it feels like like people, I think with our culture and society, people feel like it's a responsibility to have like a well-behaved dog when really like our responsibility is to love them as much as they love us. Right. Like, and, and to give them the best life possible. And, um, and the ways we do that are, you know, going to be like being safe, helpful and predictable. And we'll probably talk through, you know, some, some different things today, but, um, yeah, I think that's really important. We're not wolves, we're not dogs. So let's not try to be so just before we dive into the, the breed aspect, since we did touch a little bit on dominance, I'd like to just talk a little bit about my understanding of what that means. And I'd love for you to expand upon that or counter that however you might. So for me, what I've learned uh, the more that I've been looking into this. So dominance, I think a lot of people mistake it as like a personality type. And so what I'll see is someone will say, oh, this, yeah, he's very dominant or, you know, just submissive where in reality, like dominance or submission, a lot of times it's it's relative to the situation, relative to the context, to the individuals there. And what it is, is it's the determination of who has priority access to a resource. So it's based around resources. So whether it's like food, sleeping areas, mating partners. And so I think that a lot of times someone might especially what I see a lot is someone will mistake a dog that's really anxious or fearful or upset. And they'll say that dog is, is being dominant. And so that sometimes is used to justify these harsher methods that are used to, to in their mind, put the dog back in line and, and to put them under them and to be the, the pack leader. So what, can you define a little bit more about like what dominance might actually mean and like your take on how, how that has been misapplied maybe? Yeah. Well, we can try. <laughs> how long do we have? No, <laughs> um, it is absolutely. Well, I think the, I think the definition that you mentioned is one that is probably very relevant to most of our interactions with dogs. Yeah, I would agree. And probably the most relevant to think about and talk about there is, I think within sort of the scientific community and looking at different species and, and relationships within different individuals of different species, that there can be individuals who seem to have a collection of traits or lean towards sort of a personality characteristic of maybe I care a lot about priority access to lots of different things. So you could almost label truthfully that like they have, they tend towards dominant as a 
personality trait or characteristic. But I say that with lots of hesitation and pauses in my voice <laughs> for a reason, right? Because it's like, it also does still, but depend on the context and who they're interacting with and how much sleep they've had. And are they sore or are they grumpy or, you know, there's a million characteristics that, or there's a million other variables that go along with that. Um, yeah. So I think the simplified version would be, Brian, I don't know if you agree, but would be that like that whole sort of priority access to a resource thing is it's not the entirety of the definition, but it's most relevant to our interactions with dogs. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I would agree with that. And cause really that's where, you know, if people are having issues with their dogs, it's generally going to be around priority access to a resource. And I think the the nice thing about that is, well, if, so if, so if we, if we just, if we keep it simple for most dog things, you know, priority access to a resource. Okay. So I need my dog to maybe yield a resource. Like if there's a dangerous item on the ground and I, and I need to get it, like I need to get that thing. The thing is, is like, there's a million and one ways to teach a dog how to give up resources, <laughs> right? And we don't have to jump down a path where they have to be fearful or afraid or scared to give it to us because something bad might happen. There's ways to, to do it where they just sort of see it as like, oh, it's not a big deal to give up the bone or give up my bed and I'm, I'll happily do that. And that can be structured through your relationship and how you, um, you know, interact with them and, you know, not always like, you know, going in and sticking your hand in the food bowl or doing things that like, you know, might, uh, uh, cause, cause those behaviors to increase over time. So I, I do think that's like a good way of thinking about it. That's tends to be how I mostly talk about it with clients though. Um, sometimes we might have a little bit more involved conversation if someone's really interested in it, but at the end, at the, at the end of the day, um, if it, if it mostly comes down to priority access to resource, there's a lot of different ways to do that. So like, it's, it, it's not something where, Oh, like if, if, if your dog, if someone thinks their dog is being dominant, then the only way, th the only path through this is some sort of conflict. There's ways to, to work through this without conflict and, and actually have a stronger relationship as a result. And I think that's where a lot of the creativity comes from. That's also where understanding the dog and the owner and how to make that happen. And I also just wanted to add too, is like, I honestly don't shy away from this conversation with clients because everyone's thinking about it. Or I shouldn't say everyone. A lot of people are thinking about it. So like, let's just talk about it. Like, mm -hmm. let's have an honest conversation about it. Does it exist? Yes. How much does it matter for us and for me and my dog? Well, it depends. And even if there is a situation there where it's like there, there is some conflict over priority access to resource, the good news is we have lots of ways to do that in a way that's very peaceful and everyone should end up happy. And, and nurturing and where we're in, again, sort of that family system, maybe more of a parent dynamic. And I would wholeheartedly agree that most of the things that folks tend to perceive as dominance in our pet dogs are almost always dogs who are fearful or anxious or uncomfortable or confused and just don't understand things about our human world. So I would, I wholeheartedly agree with that, that initial statement too, that it's, it's so misinterpreted. Yes. Um, the, those, those types of behaviors that people think are their dog being like bossy or pushy or dominant is a confused or anxious or fearful dog 99% of the time. Or a sore dog or hurt dog mm -hmm. or sick dog. <laughs> so, so what about some of those, those animals? So I think about even, we have a bunch of horses at my parents' ranch up in North Idaho, and there definitely can be a pecking order amongst the horses for sure uh, for things like getting their hay, going in to get their grain, the horses coming up to get treats and 
when I think of it in that way with uh, another species, so like with the horses, Pegasus was our top horse. Like he was the one, every other horse, you know, he would step up and he never even really had to ever fight his way to the top. It's just, he was, he was the top horse and everybody would acquiesce and, you know, move away and, and let Pegasus have that, that priority place and that access. And there were some horses under him, like my one horse, TJ, who he, he and another horse would really kind of battle it out and duke it out. And we're, we're probably on a similar plane where they were somewhere towards the middle. And then we had some of a, like a little horse named Sugar Babe, who kind of was always the last one in. And she just kind of got, got with the other horses, you know, left behind. And so do you, do you think that that is a thing too? Like where a lot of times that individual that, that perhaps is more of that personality that someone might think of as dominant, that a lot of times they aren't the ones that are battling it out or having to battle it out all the time. Well, I think what we see play out in different types of species, I love that story. Me too, I love it. I want pictures of all the horses now, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Um, is that there can be a range of individuals who might end up in that sort of position, but often the ones who might remain there for long term are the ones who are measured and not picking fights with everyone and are very calm, right? Like I think we see that in in different primate species and things like that too. Like someone who's really aggressive and spicy and picking fights with other individuals all the time might be able to like claw their way into that position, but it often doesn't last very long because the rest of the individuals in that social group are like, this is terrible. I don't want you in in that position. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, like that's, and the, those, uh, social structures are generally, they've, uh, you know, evolved to reduce the instances of, of aggression. So like, cause if people, if conspecifics are like the same species, if they're fighting all the time, it's not really advantageous from an evolutionary perspective. So, um, and, and, and when there isn't that happening, they tend to be more stable sort of structures as well. So the less conflict that's actually happening, the more stable it is. And so, yeah, like people can, you know, and you know, what's funny about this? Like I think about, sometimes I explain this to people from like a human perspective, like I, so I play ice hockey cause I'm originally from Canada. So of course I play ice hockey and depending what team I'm on, right? Like when it gets to the end of the game and it's a close game, like if I'm on a team where I'm one of the better players, like people sort of yield the ice time right to you and there's no fighting about it. But then there's other times where like, I'm not the best guy on the team or even close. So like when that comes to the end of the game, I sort of step back. But then sometimes you can see people sort of like fighting about ice time or, or, or doing it. But in general, like people um, like within those social structures, like it, it it's it's it works much better when, when everyone sort of understands what, what's happening and, and that structure doesn't have a lot of conflict in it. So I know that was a little bit of a tangent going into hockey on an, on a, on a dog podcast. So, <laughs> um, but I think about it all the time because I really feel like it's almost like the, the same concept because that ice time is like a resource basically. Um, and I, now I can't help but see it that way. That's a really, really good analogy. And I actually really like that point about the social skills part, because even thinking back with Pegasus, Pegasus would be the horse out of all the horses that he would let Sugar Babe come eat next to him because we had these trough feeders. And so the lowest horse on the totem pole, like Sugar Babe kind of was watched out for by Pegasus. He was very considerate and kind. And yeah, you just, he was a good soul. And, you know, he didn't have to force his way up. He just yeah, had that kind of respect from the other horses. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to think of it. It definitely was social skills driven. 
I think yeah. in a lot of ways. I think I think it is a lot of times. I do too. Yeah. I think a lot of, and that's what I think we should all strive for with our dogs too, is like, how can we be kind and calm and, you know, confident and give them the guidance that they need to just feel safe. Cause that's really what it's all about. You yes. know, like if we're striving to be leaders, we're just helping our dogs feel safe and know how to navigate our world, which I don't know how they do it so well. I still am always like yeah, me neither. in awe of how they man- they manage to live with us so well. So speaking of the way that dogs live with us, I know that we as people sometimes have these these perceptions of a dog is going to be this way because they're this breed. They're a golden retriever, for instance. They're always going to love people. They're going to be so friendly and happy and social. Or same thing with the lab. A lot of times they, they're very friendly, social. So we have these ideas, but the dogs don't necessarily always conform to what we think of them being, depending upon that breed. And there definitely can be some outliers. And I, I listened to a podcast that you did on this subject, specifically taking a study that you were a part of the brainstorming part of initiating the study. And there were some takeaways from the study that maybe were a little bit misleading. Can you talk about the study and what it found? And then we can dive more into some of those nuances in there. <laughs> yes, we'll do our best. It's been a, it's been a little while, but we did a recent re- review again to make sure it was, it was top of mind. Um, I think the the short answer is this is all so messy and complex. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I think the best way to look at it for folks, uh, with, so the study looked at um, whether certain behaviors were more prevalent or common based on a dog's breed and found that for things we might sometimes expect, like, um, aggression towards people and some things like that. There wasn't really a lot there that they found in their study in terms of what looked like kind of heritability and, and breed being a real big factor in that. There were other behaviors like hounds baying or herding dogs doing herding type behaviors that did seem to have a breed element, which makes a lot of sense when we think about it like that. But I think what where we landed in our discussion about this for to help people think about breed is that if you have some qualities or characteristics that are really important to you as an owner, like if you're looking for a dog who in your ideal world would be really social with people, you know, or really outgoing or like certain activities, you can sometimes stack the deck in your favor by choosing from a certain pool of breeds that may be more likely to have those characteristics. And even within that, looking at the lines and the types of temperaments that an individual breeder is breeding for is really important but knowing that at the end of the day, there are so many variables that go into a dog's personality and temperament. And, you know, you just have to be prepared to get to know the individual in front of you and adapt and kind of nurture them accordingly. So there's no guarantees based on breed, but you can stack the deck in your favor if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was interesting, like looking at some of the headlines from that study, because I remember before I really dove into it and it's a, it's kind of a a hard study Mm -hmm. to read. Like I love reading studies, but this one, I was like, wow, I have to really Mm -hmm. like dig in there and concentrate. And it was not easy. And there's still parts where I'm like a little confused. So, I mean, I, I think that some of the takeaways though in the mainstream media from this were that breed doesn't matter. Like breed doesn't matter. Like that's not the big influencer. So don't, don't let that necessarily determine like what type of dog that you pick. 
but as a, a trainer, behavior consultant, and I know for you guys, like it, that kind of gives you uh, definitely a cause for pause and more because it's like, well, you know, I, I remember my, I had a family member who was in her eighties and got a Vizsla puppy. And it was like, Ooh, that's probably not the best idea, but you know, cause it, it, there definitely can be an influence of breed on that dog's behavior from my opinion. So how do you think that that, that result was misleading and how did it get so misconstrued? Perhaps? Yeah, it, it was really, I think it was hard for a lot of us in the training community to see that how kind of black and white those head, headlines were made out to be that breed shouldn't be an, an influencer in your decision of what, what dog you're going to get. And I think all of us, that's just really worrisome because to your point, it, it it is a factor to consider and it's, it's a big one to consider depending, especially depending on the breed that you're getting. Um, I think that, I mean, headlines are always going to be written to have people to encourage people to click and read more. So I know that was a part of it. I do think that potentially the way that the abstract and discussion were written in that study led the media down a path to grab onto those and yeah. and use those types of headlines. I think probably if the abstract and discussion had been written differently, we wouldn't have landed in that place. And that's a personal choice from the scientists and not to take away from everything they did. I think it was just, it was an easy leap Yes, for, for journalists to choose the headlines that they did. Yeah. It, yeah. It was an easy leap and um... it was a step. Yeah. Versus a, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was a step as opposed to a you know to to a leap, and um, and you know, at, and then at the same time, like I also know, breed is such a it's it's such a tricky thing because like it like does it play a factor? Maybe does it happen? Is like is, is it going to play a factor with your dog? Maybe um, it's there's so many maybes and caveats, and we were you know doing we, we were talking about this with a. a uh, a couple of other trainers actually just yesterday and like the amount of times we had to say, yeah, but, but think about this or maybe this, like there's so many caveats with breed. And I think that's because you have to be really careful about overgeneralization. And I think that's where some of like the, the, the hesitancy comes from is like, oh, like just because you have a terrier, it means like they're never going to be able to go off leash because they're going to be hunting little furry things. Well, maybe that's true for, for, for some, you know, intense Jack Russells out there, but then there might be other dogs where like, that's like not the case, um, or other Jack Russells where, where, where that's not the case. I like, and it, and it can, I, where I'm always careful with it too, is I don't want it to be, I don't want people to have like limiting beliefs about like what their dog can do or can't do because of their breed. And <laughs> there's also times like, because they're, they might be displaying certain behaviors that might be more breed typical, it might actually impact what, what they can do on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's such a nuanced line and I always get a little bit nervous talking about it, but I'm also really excited to talk about it to sort of walk that line. And if we look at the research, like this one, and I can't remember the, uh, the other recent one that came out, cause I did a, a, a video on it there a couple of months ago where they looked at breed differences. Um, cause a lot of, there's studies where they look at breed groups and then there's studies where they're looking at like individual breeds within a breed group. And like, there's, they're seeing a lot of variability with, um, uh, within breed group, uh, as well. But with a lot of these studies, like, is it owner reported scores is, are there actual professionals taking a look at things? What are the sample sizes? Like, has any of this stuff been repeated? And the answer right now is like, there's lots of cool stuff coming out, but it, it really seems to be, we can't draw any hard and fast conclusions. 
And I feel like for us too, there's sort of like two things where it's like, there's the science part of it, which I find like really fascinating. And, and what, what are we actually finding? And then there's the part, like, how do we actually help people by talking about their dog, helping them understand that, yeah, like your dog was bred to be suspicious of strangers. So that, you know, that, that, that could help explain why, why they're a little suspicious of, of, of when people come in and not like throwing that away. So, um, I guess it's a long winded way to say it's complicated. Um, don't overgeneralize, but also make sure you do research your dog's breed because you might actually see things in there that might help explain some of their behavior. And at the very least, if you can understand them better, you're going to be in a better position to move forward with them in, in whatever way you want. Yeah, I, I like those points a lot. Like one thing I think about that's useful from this is that part that that breed really doesn't impact that aggression, like you said, like the, the rate of this, this type of behavior of like the pet being more likely to have, have a reactive type of response to something that, that upsets them uh, versus that pet that is just more kind of like easygoing kind of thing. And I think that that's probably very helpful in terms of like breed specific legislation that really has, there's so many problems behind that. So I think that that's really useful and taking away some of those stigmas from, from dogs that that really don't deserve those stigmas. I I think within that, I mean, there's just so much there really. I, I even think of like breed and sometimes like, I, I know one thing from the study that was interesting was that aspect of just environment and how that impacts behavior. And I think of even the, I, this was a long time ago, so I can't remember the, the specific study, but it was looking at uh, different breeds and kind of why, why people get them. And so like a German shepherd, for instance, someone might want a German shepherd for those reasons of like protection purposes and like trying to keep their family safe. So that dog might be raised differently than that Labrador retriever who is going to be that mm -hmm. family dog that they want to love everyone. And have, have you seen that as well? I can't recall the specific one that you're, um, referencing, but the, that impact of environment, and how much that's, uh, I think probably like conflates, you know, the other conf conclusions we draw about breed. And I'm not saying, I do believe that breed has an influence on behavior straight up, like, you know, mm -hmm. to some degree, how much will vary a lot, but that role of environment and that impact of environment is just, I don't even know if you can overstate it. Yeah. How impactful that is on the behavior of our dogs and ourselves. I was going to say, I love that point about like, yeah, yeah. is your German Shepherd acting German Shepherdy because they're a German Shepherd or because you raised them to be what you expect a German Shepherd to be, you know, or you rewarded those behaviors when like, you know, and reinforced them because that's what you expected and wanted to see. It's, it is a really interesting question or both. And the answer is probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and even, even like that aspect of like, as, as you mentioned, that owner perception and how that could influence how a person sees their dog. So I think within this one, one thing that I noticed was the owner perception of their golden retriever, for instance, they were less likely to see their golden retriever as being fearful of strangers, even if they were presenting mm -hmm. that way, because they may have in their mind that golden retrievers are friendly towards everybody. Mm -hmm. Do you see that with some of the dogs that you work with and the people that you work with, that they may have this misconception of what their dog should be like, and maybe how that impacts what they expose their dog to that may actually be harmful in some ways for their pet? I think we do. I th I'm sure you see that as well. And it's not, um, it's not because people are doing it, I think, 
on purpose or trying to put their dogs in inappropriate situations in any way, shape or form. But yeah, it's really hard if we have a, if we're viewing our dog through a certain lens and we just expect them to be a certain way, it's really easy to miss what they're actually telling us and how they're really showing up in the world. Because to your point, like, you know, or we have, I have a, a lab and I expect that they should love going to the dog beach and like playing with all the other dogs and know, swimming. Maybe they do love swimming, but maybe they really don't love being around other dogs, but the owner's just not seeing those cues because their expectations tell them otherwise. Yeah. 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 I would think that. And I, I, I feel like also too, like, uh, yeah, a couple things. Like one is there's like, sometimes there's unfair expectations on like a new puppy that someone just got because like they're thinking like, Oh, I got, uh, you know, whatever I I got this golden retriever. So they're going to be friendly with everyone. And then if they're not, it's like their dog is broken, but if they got a cane of Corso, that maybe is a little bit suspicious of people. They can be like, well, he's a cane of Corso. So it's okay. So like it, it can kind of go both ways sometimes. Um, and I think that's why it's also, yeah, you just, you know, <laughs> and, and, the sort of just back to the point on, you know, um, you know, is it environment and genetics and all those things? Like what, like what, one of my like funny examples that always sticks in my head about this, about, uh, you know, about, about the genetic portion and when it might come out was like our little rat terrier, Joey, who's I don't know, seven or eight or nine. I'm losing track. I'm getting, we're getting old. So I'm sorry. We got him. When we were a little older. But like, he's like the friendliest <laughs> little dog. We adopted him. We didn't do anything to make him friendly. He just came that way. He loves everyone. He loves dogs. He loves everything. And when we had our place in New York City, especially <laughs> during the pandemic, we had a backyard and I, I know it's a little gross, but like in New York City, there's a lot of rats around um, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the first opportunity he had, he killed that rat. Like in a second, you know? So like you, like I never would have expected that from Joey. Um like whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Um, but then he did it and it's like, well, I have a rat terrier. So, you know, so now like what I have to think about, like, where am I going to be around rats or like what situations he's going to be in? So, um, I did, I did, I did just want to throw that out there. Cause again, we don't really know. And even as an expert and we know, and mm-hmm. we knew Joey for six years and I wouldn't have known what, what the answer mm-hmm. was if he saw a rat and that's what he did. So. I bet that was a surprise. I, I know my mom, like living up in North Idaho, I mean, it's just, you know, dogs, it's so nice that dogs get to be off leash and just run around and have so much freedom, but it was awful for her, pretty traumatic for her the day that her dog ended up, I'm this little tiny, just so cute. He's this little lap dog in this little mix of Pomeranian and like Chihuahua kind of mix. And, but he ended up, there was a squirrel that just ran across the road when we were, we were walking and he just, it was just mm-hmm. instant. He just ran, grabbed it, killed it. And my mom was just, oh, so upset. Like, how could you do this, um, Coyote? And, and just like, oh, my little man, like just so shocked. So I think there are those things, like, and as you mentioned, like where we forget that our dogs are dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where those, those things that are hardwired, actually, I think my first dog ever, this is actually what got me into dog training was my first dog. That was a, a wire haired Fox terrier. Oh. And I would, yeah. Nice. <laughs> I wish, I don't know that that's the best first dog. I mean, she ended up being great, but she's literally what got me into dog training. Cause I was five or six and I saved up to get her and, 
oh my God, I just remember opening up a birthday present, for instance, and I wasn't even really that into dolls, but I had gotten a Barbie and I was like, so I pulled it out of the box. And of course I was all excited about my briar horses that I got, but I got this Barbie and I'm like, looking at it like, okay, like, I think I could try to like this. And I'm like examining it. And all of a sudden Scooter flies out of nowhere. Like she just was chilling over by herself on the other side of the room. She just comes flying and she grabs, she runs up, leaps, grabs that Barbie head and she just grabs it in her mouth and she takes off. So there I am holding this like headless (laughs) Barbie. And I'm like, what happened? I'm just sitting there for like, probably like 20 seconds just in shock like what happened and uh it it was it was just this this part of her where you know she was definitely uh, born to to get those small rodents and one time I, I had the task of being able we had this this class gerbil that we would take home and have different turns and oh that gerbil was in danger thankfully we had to we protected him but oh my god scooter like caught that scent and she was just obsessed over that whole weekend about that so i mean definitely they're they're you know just dogs in general and certain breeds are definitely can be these tendencies Are there other examples that you can think of of like how breed might yeah, play a role? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is almost what we see more often is sometimes um, sometimes folks might get a certain breed and not really understand what some of those breed typical behaviors might be and come in and say like, my dog's not, you know, my dog's behaving poorly or my dog's not being appropriate. And really it's like, there's things we can do to help you um, you know, manage your environment and do some training so that everyone's, everyone's a little happier with, with how things work in your home or on walks or things like that. But, you know, your Australian shepherd getting really worked up at like fast moving kids or a skateboard going by and wanting to move toward and sort of control some of that movement is, is something that we might expect to see. And that doesn't mean there aren't things that we can do about it, but that's your dog it could be because they're fearful or whatever else, but there's also a decent chance that some of their herding dog genes are telling them, go slow that wayward sheep down, you know, and get them back on track. And I think sometimes folks just don't, don't know that. So it can be upsetting when they see those behaviors, but knowing that that could be just a component of who your dog is because of their breed can make it a lot easier to empathize with them and see they're not being bad. They're being actually who they were sort of bred to be. So how do we set them up for success in their given environment, knowing that, you know, chasing kids on scooters isn't really the ideal thing to do in our current setup? Yeah. And I would go to like, definitely kind of on the same lines, but like more like the guardian type breeds. So ones who are more suspicious of strangers. Um, and, uh, and we have people come to us who recognize that with their puppies. So they're sort of like, what can we do to actually incur like through the environment and through socialization and how are we like, how is our daily structure set up so that they might feel the less of a need to sort of, um, act that way. But I would say like those guardian type breeds for me are sort of, um, high on that list and de- definitely the herding dogs and yeah. the, and the other, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I, I would agree with some of those guardian breeds or breeds who might be, you know have been selected to have a smaller social group to be maybe a little bit less socially flexible or a little bit more vigilant about unfamiliar people is, you know, what inviting guests into your home might look very different when you have that breed versus if you have say a breed typical golden retriever, but people may not realize that and then become concerned if their dog, you know, hits six months, eight months, 10 months and starts displaying certain behaviors, not because they're bad, but because some of those breed typical like instincts are kicking in. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then the other ones are absolutely like the scent hounds <laughs> and just the reality of uh, your game plan for off-leash training has to be more on point than maybe some other breeds out of the box. Um, and that doesn't mean there's lots of scent hounds that go off-leash and do all these things, but there's also, um, you know, they can be very independent um, and when they get on something. So that so that that, that would be the, the one other area that when we see that. And it's funny about this too, like we were, uh, again, having a conversation the other day and just talking about our, to our behavior consultants and trainers, like when we get our intake forms and obviously breeds on there, and there was multiple of us that were like, we actually don't read breed until the end because like we're a little bit nervous that it might sort of cloud our assessment because we, um, and I'm one of the ones who does that. And then there were others on the call where they look at that first because they feel like that's a really important first thing to look at. Um, so it's sort of interesting on like, it really does play a role, but also like how we sort of walk that line to make sure that we're again, not stereotyping a dog too much, but also keeping in mind what are some things that might be at play here and like, how can we best meet their needs um, or are there certain behavior modification uh, approaches that might be better for them? But I thought that was, or we thought that was really interesting that some of us don't look at the breed until the end. That is really interesting. Now I even think of that, like, so I, I would evaluate dogs for the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation. We're going into shelters and pulling out different dog candidates that I would do this testing with. So basically the testing would consist of things like throwing a ball or throwing a toy to see their interest in it. And then seeing how, just how determined they were to track down that toy if it was hidden. And it was interesting through my experience and through the training there, a lot of those like herding breeds. So any of the border collies or mixes, for instance, or uh, Australian shepherds, a lot of times they were much more visual. It wasn't always, but a lot of times they were more visual. So if you threw the toy, they were determined to get it, but if they didn't see it thrown and it was just placed and hidden. So like, for instance, like hidden in a bush while they were around the corner, maybe they weren't quite as determined to find that toy as something as a dog, like a golden retriever or that Labrador retriever, where a lot of times they, in my experience were more determined to kind of track it down through their nose and really sniffing it out. H have you found any differences like that in your experience? That's such a cool story. Yeah, it is super cool. Yeah. Like a really neat, that's a really neat example of how breed might show up in a way that people don't necessarily expect. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, yeah. And it, it was interesting because like even that, so what they were looking for in terms of the, the search dog foundation, they really want that dog that is really determined to find that item, even if they can't see it. So for those dogs that, you know, to have that determination, like still there and yeah, it, it was interesting, but uh, well, another thing too. So even when thinking about, about movement, so, you know, for those dogs that were super determined to find it, even with their nose, there also was this line where a lot of them, you know, they still, of course, being a dog, they are drawn to movement and that could be a problem because these dogs are working, you know, hundreds of feet away from their handler. And if they see a bird or a small little animal squirrel run by those dogs that, that were prone to chase, a lot of times they, they wouldn't be able to make it through the program and they may go into something else like canine detection work where they're on leash and, and doing some drug detection, for instance. So, yeah, it's, it's a, a very interesting balance in interesting how that plays out. It really is. And this isn't, I guess this is a little bit of a different line, but one thing that I do think we sometimes need to help people with that I find shows up a lot with breed, even though there's lots of individual variability is, um, what sorts of like physical affection in an interaction certain breeds tend to enjoy 
versus others and how sometimes if there's a mismatch between what the owner wants to default to, if like someone's really affectionate and huggy and lovey, but maybe they have like, um, like a Sheba who's a little bit more like, let's sit next to each other for four hours and enjoy our companionship silently. And I know there's exceptions and there's lots of cuddly Shebas out there, but that can be hard for people because that may not be the type of interaction or affection that their dog really loves. Um, you know, like a lot of bully breeds really love physical attention and affection and sort of getting rubbed up on. And then like, there's other ones who just, just don't feel that way. Or if I find a lot of herding breeds can be just sort of aware and very sensitive to like spatial, uh, where is everyone in space and how forward are you being with your petting? And that makes sense with what they were designed to do, but, but people might not always recognize that. And it's really hard as a, I think as a dog owner, as a pet owner to, if you really just want to snuggle your dog, but you don't have a super snuggly, cuddly dog and breed is playing a role in that, that can be hard for people. Yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing too, is like, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because even, you know, we, we've had basically bully mixes and rat terriers our, our entire life. And like one of my favorite breeds to train is a Shiba Inu. And it's like a complete, they, and I've, we've trained quite a few of them. Um, and they sort of feel like, I sort of feel like I'm like a friend. So like we sort of have to, like we're going through the world together and it's, and I actually love that relationship because they're kind of independent and they're not, they're not like not social. They're just not going to do whatever you ask them to do. Um, unless like they feel like they want to. And, um, and I, so I, I, so it's like, so just to your points are like about like getting that, um, you know, are you getting what, what, what you're expecting and that sort of thing? I do feel like that's one place where breeds can sometimes feel different is again, every sheep is different. That whole caveat thing we talked about, but in general, like I love, I just love the vibe that they give me. Like, I feel like they're wearing sunglasses and we're just out like hanging out and they're way cooler than I'll ever be way cooler than a hundred percent. Shibas are way cooler. Um, (laughs) and you know, whereas like, yeah, there's, you know, maybe some more like the, like toy breeds and, and other types of dogs where it's more like, you know, they, it's more like a, we we talked about this, you know, before, like the, more like a parent relationship with them and it, it, it can sort of feel different. So I sort of feel like for some of these dogs, yeah, just how it, that the relationship with them and how it feels can be different based on breed. And again, that's completely subjective. Everyone has their own, you know, preferences and what we're actually noticing about the relationship and the behavior. But that's, you know, sort of one thing that I've yeah. uh, thought well, like, about. Was a, a certain breed bred originally to do things like cooperatively with someone with a whole lot of input and back and forth or were they bred to maybe go out and do things more independently? And mm-hmm. we have to suspect that that would influence the kind of relationship that they seek out with a person to a certain degree. So I find that stuff really interesting as well. Yeah, me too. So what about dog size? I I know that this study that we were talking about showed that size maybe doesn't play such a role in behavior. There was another one I was looking at that was talked about on companion animal psychology, and it was looking at what they called a small dog syndrome. So the dogs that maybe were more reactive, very emotional, would have these different displays, more kind of anxious or reactive type of behavior. Uh, so in that study, what it looked at, it was, and, and actually this really does kind of correlate, but so it was less about the dog's size per se, but it was more about how the person really raised and interacted with their dog. So a lot of times it was more like human 
drive factors that influence the dog's behavior. So things like that, them not providing as much exercise or enrichment for that dog, the dog not having as many choices. So it, the dog being picked up and taken away, for instance, versus can't really do that with a bigger dog and maybe not having as much training. And one thing that they found in the study, so I think for all dogs, we can you know point to research that shows that that positive reinforcement training is is definitely really the way to go in terms of the wanting to get that desired effect and having very few side effects that are negative for that pet. But the smaller dogs did seem to react especially negatively towards more of those aversive types of, of training methods. But how do you think that perhaps owner perception of a small dog or the way that they interact with their dog might be a, a greater influence than perhaps breed might be? Yeah, that's a really good question. Do, do you want to start? Either way, I'm happy yeah, go to. Ahead. Yeah, um, I think that comes back to that role of sort of environment. And if we lump in the human, you know, the way that pet owners interact with their dogs as part of the environment, just sort of the social environment, um, I think that's a that feels very true a lot of the time. Again, if we always say, yes, breed can play a role, um, but I think, and I think one of the other things, along with some of the situations you mentioned where like, yes, little dogs might be more often to more likely to get less training and they might be, again, have their agency taken away more often or be put in situations where they just feel overwhelmed. I think one of the other things is that compared to with a bigger dog, um, sometimes if a smaller dog is displaying something like say reactivity, it's easier to manage as a human and can, it can go on a lot longer and get to a point where it's a lot more severe than anyone would ever be able to manage if they had like an 80 or 90 pound dog. So which I think is probably just allowed to, they may receive less intervention or yeah. the intervention they do receive happens way later than it would otherwise. And so we see these issues more often. Yeah. Um, it's, e it's easier to just kind of let it go unchecked or untreated. Which is unfortunate because they still have all, just because they're little doesn't mean they're not having really big feelings when that's happening. Um, yeah. And then the other thing too, I do find with small dogs, like I, I, I'm a firm believer they know how big they are as well. Like I, like I, they're not stupid. Like they know <laughs> there's a, that dog is like 10 times their size. Right. And like, that can be scary. And, and especially if you're like walking around, you know, like even like in New York city where like one out of every 10 dogs lunges and barks at you or does things like that can build up over time. And it's sort of like, I know I'm small. It seems a little unpredictable out here. And especially if, um, they're not getting a whole lot of like feedback from the owner or like the, like if the owner's not being their advocate and creating space when needed, um, and doing those things, then those dogs are sort of like, well, I sort of have to figure this out for myself. Um, and I'm going to be proactive about scaring the big dog away and doing those things. But I, I, I personally, and again, I, I know not every small dog thinks that way, but I do think a lot of small dogs actually know their size disadvantage. Um, and I do think that plays into like how they perceive threat sometimes. And that's why I think it's really, really important for little dogs, owners of little dogs to really learn how to listen to their body language, how to be their advocate, not let people into their space or a big dog come up and greet them if they're not comfortable with that. And how do we manage that with defensive handling? But I think that's really important because um, they're just less capable of defending themselves and they know that, I think. I don't know what's going on in their head, but that's what I think. <laughs> so another thing that I see in terms of breeds, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this and what your experience is, is the difference between 
dogs that come from more of a show line. So where it's more about confirmation and how the dog looks physically versus those that are more from that working dog line. And again, I'm going to go back to Labrador retrievers just because we have so many, especially in my area of Washington, Idaho, where, and especially with like finding them out for the, the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, a lot of times my experience through that and through working with dogs in classes, a lot of times the show line Labradors are going to probably have more of like the blockier body, blockier head. So kind of bigger, bigger bones. And then more of the working lines are a lot of times are, are thinner. They're going to be smaller framed, perhaps a little bit longer nose and skinnier face. So they look different. And a lot of times they, are, they behave mm -hmm. different. And in my experience, it's like the working dog is, is going to like, you know, probably be a little bit more intense, a little bit less easy to keep as, the, as that, that pet dog. And a lot of times yeah, they have a lot, a lot of energy that really needs to be directed in a good direction versus perhaps that show line of dog. Maybe they are a little bit more laid back, not always, but a lot of times they, they have a little bit more of an easygoing personality. Uh, have you found that in different breeds Absolutely. as well? Yeah. I feel yeah. like they almost feel like totally different breeds sometimes, truthfully. Like that's the, the, such a stark difference between them. And I often think that with, you know, maybe if people like I don't know when to AKC meet the greet the breeds and met like sort of a sh like confirmation like show version of a certain breed and then sort of by accident went out and got a totally different line that was maybe more purpose bred or function bred and and working lines and ooh just the difference mm -hmm. can be so stark and to your point I think it was well said in terms of like the intensity and energy that they bring mm -hmm. to everything yeah. Well, and that's why it's really important too. Like if you're looking at getting a different breed, like you actually, it's not even just doing your research on the breed. It's actually you have to do a lot of research on the breeders um, and what they're breeding for, like you mentioned, and like talking to, if, if you're able to, because um, you might even be able to talk to other owners of those um, dog, uh, 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 owners who, who, who got those dogs from there, because that can be uh, really different. Because I know like too, like there's been certain, um, I think it was labs but like i know like we've had uh some clients where multiple clients got their dogs from the same breeder and like so many of them were just like really coped well in a human world um and more so than than, than the average dog of that particular breed um and i know that's happened a couple of times and we sort of seen it the other way too um so like so just mm -hmm. like to your point yeah even within breed there's so many differences even just like between breeders or how they're breeding or what they're selecting for um and that's why it always gets back to two. That's, it's like how useful is breed actually? Um, cause it is useful, but again, it's all the, it's all these caveats because it's, it's so nuanced. One other thing that I, I just loved listening to you, uh, both on your presentations and, uh, I think an important point that you both made was that sometimes we have this thought that it's it's never the dog. It's always the owner. So the owner is the one to blame. So, you know, if the dog is having behavior issues, it's always the person's fault. The person isn't doing enough. The person did too much. And I've, as you touched on earlier, sometimes genetics really can play a role and you may not notice it come out until they hit that time of adolescence. And all of a sudden they become sexually mature, but socially they aren't, aren't mature yet, but you really see this worsening or, or a sudden disappearance of these behaviors you didn't see before. Like, can you explain a little bit about, about how, you know, that there may be those mis misconceptions and, and also this like false blame that's put yes. on the person that maybe you can help to alleviate yeah. some of that guilt. And it's so harmful. And I know it's, we hear those phrases, like it's all how they're raised and, 
you know, that make people feel like if their dog's showing any sort of issues, they must have done something wrong. And we hear that from clients all the time. And I'm sure you do as well, where it's just like, I don't know what I did. I must have did something. And people carry around this tremendous amount of guilt and blame that they put on themselves. And yeah, I think just reiterating for people that the number of variables that go into who your dog is and how they behave is, there's so many And there's a huge biological component. And when we talk about genetics, we're talking about, you know, more than just breed, like what lines did they come from? What is their family heritage? What was their like neonatal environment? You know, how was their mom feeling when she was, when she was pregnant? All of that, we don't know. Like, um, it has such a huge impact. And then there's also just individual variability in temperament, right? Like just like us with people, um, So I think it's really important for people to understand that if your dog starts to display certain issues or certain behaviors, I think the analogy we often make is you, sometimes there are things we have to change, right? We all have an influence on our dogs and we are the path forward to help them make things better for everyone. But I do often like to say to folks who are generally doing a really wonderful job is you could have done the exact same thing with nine other dogs and not be in this position right now. Yes. Right. Like, and it's just this, it's, it's your dog and the combination of who they are and their environment and how do we move forward and, and help them. But it's not because you're necessarily doing anything wrong. Right. There just might be things we have to, might, we have to adjust for your specific dog. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I, and I do love that. Like, it's not your fault, but you are the path forward. Um, cause I, I use that a lot. And, and I know you mentioned that Sarah and, Cause it is important, like, especially if you're dealing with some tricky issues, you, you have, you, I shouldn't say you have to have to or should, but I would highly recommend that like you work on letting that guilt go. Cause a lot of people have that guilt and shame cause it makes it really hard to move forward. And it's just like, I am the path forward. And to sort of take this a step uh, further is sometimes when people get puppies, they think they're getting a blank slate and we hear that all the time. And then you are not <laughs> getting a blank slate. You are not. And when I was saying this to you yesterday and you brought up, like, I was like, the slate's already pretty full. And like Sarah mentioned, yeah, like we're pretty much just putting in like punctuation, like on the slate, right? So they, and that can have like a big impact. But because um, even like when people get puppies, sometimes they'll get a puppy and and then they turn six months old and they're reactive or they have like different other things. Like that almost certainly wasn't your fault, you know? Um, but a lot of people think it is like, well, I got this puppy and now this puppy is having these issues. Um, and I think yeah. to that point as well, if I think this is compounded by how freely other people give advice, right? If they see someone in their family or a friend or whoever who has a dog with certain issues, oh, just try X or you should just do Y. And maybe because it worked with their own dog or because they saw it on a TV show or whatever it might be. And it may have worked for their own dog, but that's not the dog that you have, right? Your dog is a different dog. And, and from the outside, it's really easy for people to just say, oh, just do, just do A or B and it'll fix the issue or you just need to be more assertive or whatever it is. And you and your dog have your own unique dynamic and they are their own individual. And that's why I think it's really important if you're seeking help and working with a trainer to find someone who really honors and recognizes that. Yeah. And doesn't make you feel judged and makes you feel supported. And it's really just about being curious and learning what do you and your dog need to succeed. I think that's a bit of a tangent too, but it just felt important to say. Well, and then I, and I just want to add on, on top of that, I think one of the other things too, just to mention for people, especially if they're listening and they have a dog who maybe has like some behavior issues. I, I, I honestly think for me, one of the 
one of the biggest mind, uh, like a, a shift in mindset that made a really big difference. And I, I try to help clients with this is like, if we're seeing behavior problems, then really we can just view it as like communication that like they're looking for help or that they're uncomfortable. Um, or they're not able to cope with this situation. So if we start viewing it as like, oh, like you're uncomfortable with this, okay. So then like, what can we do to move forward? Um, and it doesn't need, things don't have to be perfect. And there's almost always ways to make things better. Um, but I, I do find clients when they started to think that way as well, um, was a really nice way for them to kind of get out of that guilt mindset or it's their fault and get more into my dog is telling me something. So now what do we do? Yeah, that's such a good way to put it. So, so taking that information there, there's just so much there. And I love the way that, that you put all of that. I, I think of like the dogs per, perhaps that are dog reactive. So, and so what happens with those dogs, a lot of times they take, the person takes their dog out in a walk and their dog just kind of blows up at the end of the leash. So like barking, lunging, spinning, kind of almost like frothing at the mouth, like that Cujo kind of dog at the end of the leash and person over time, it, it, when it doesn't go away or what they're doing isn't effective, they can feel like so embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when I go in to help people, the dog is just kind of just in the backyard. And even back there, it's like the person is just so embarrassed because their dog's like reacting to everything that passes by. And there's just this huge shame. And it's almost like they're, you know, it's like the scarlet letter. They're wearing that letter on their chest every time they take their dog out. And it's just this embarrassment. Like I'm a terrible person. I'm such a bad owner. It's my fault. And, you know, a lot of times it's educating them uh, you know, about maybe perhaps why their dog's acting that way. And like you said, it's communication. But so for a dog that, that is reactive like that out on walks and the person is embarrassed, like how would you help them to feel like they can get to that point of grace with themselves and be able to, to really get on board with really helping their path, their pet on that path forward together? I think a lot of it initially is just that being comfortable with that sort of progress, not perfection mindset and like one step at a time. Mm -hmm. And I think relieving the pressure for people to be perfect at what they're doing. We, we all want to keep dogs under threshold and set them up for success and make sure that they're not practicing or rehearsing the behavior. But I think sometimes what gets uh, lost in that for people is if you're see, if you're seeking help and you have a reactive dog, you are awesome because you've already done it. I know how hard mm -hmm. that is. It takes courage because to your point, you do often feel like embarrassed or worried, or you don't know how someone's going to treat your dog. I think if you just know that if you're seeking help with a reactive dog and we've owned rescue dogs who react from the past, there will be more reactions, right? Like it, it, your dog mm -hmm. is going to react at other dogs. It's going to happen. It's part of the process. We obviously want to set them up to limit that, but don't feel like you shouldn't feel like a failure because you don't just go from day one. I have a reactive dog to they can never react again, or it's not going to get better. Mm -hmm. You know, like take the pressure off yourself and your dog with the expectation that you're going to need to be perfect at everything because that's not possible and it's not necessary. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, that's well said. And, and I also sort of feel like with, you know, sort of that allowing yourself that, that grace to move forward. I think the other reality of this sometimes, like when we do these evaluations with uh, reactive dogs, it's sort of asking like, Hey, is this something that we can make some progress on with behavior modification alone? Like, is this truly just about environment and maybe some tweaks we make in your handling? Cause like there's sometimes like, like two or three or four things make a massive difference over two to three months. There are other people that come to us that they might've been through three, four, five different trainers and have followed everything to the letter and done it, everything. And 
honestly, their dog is just not capable of learning because their feelings are too big. Like they are struggling with that Mm -hmm. fear or anxiety. So knowing like, Hey, like as a behavior professional, we need our vet colleagues here, or we need our, a vet behaviorist colleague, or maybe we need a neurologist or maybe whatever it is. There are those times where that also, I think really allowed a lot of people to move forward and also being like, Hey, like you can't, as a, when we talked about, about us being, you know, uh, human primates, like as a human primate, like we can't really change their brain chemicals that are going on inside there. Right. Like we need help for that. Like we need to reach out and, and if we can do that and help them feel more comfortable, then all of the training is probably going to click into place and get you somewhere else. So I would say like, that's the other thing, just like work because we do a lot of uh, moderate to severe um, aggression and behavior type stuff. Um, I think one of my frustrations sometimes is like it all can just be handled with behavior modification. And sometimes we actually do need that medical input as well. So for anyone out there who's been struggling and trying and just feels like nothing's sticking and you haven't really got that assessment from like a, a vet who likes behavior or a veterinary behaviorist, um, that can be really game changing for both you and your dog for sure. Really well said. Brian, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. How can people find out more about you? Well, uh, yeah, you can go to our website. So instinctdogtraining.com. We have 11 locations across the U.S. I won't list them all, but we're spread out all over. Um, If you go to our website, we do have a YouTube channel, lots of videos. Um, If you go to our online school, uh, onlineschool.instinctdogtraining.com. We have lots of great free courses out there. And uh, did I forget anything, Sarah? I think, you can, mo- I think you can mostly find everything from the website. Mostly find, And we do have free seminars that take place every month as well on rescue dog roadmaps and puppy parenting roadmaps and uh, behavior roadmaps that are free to kind of help people get started. So if you're out there looking for help and don't know where to go, then uh, there's free ways to do so. Yeah, they're great. I, I did both <laughs> of those. So definitely was very impressed. Well, thank you so much for joining and hopefully we can have you back again soon. Yeah, right. thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in every two weeks as we explore more about your pets. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any of our upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's the number 3, the word 1, and the word O. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.